0: Hey, welcome to church. We're so glad you're here. My name's Colby. I serve as one of the elders here and uh, excited to be in God's Word with you. I got great uh, encouragement thinking about something this week, and I want to kind of lead into our sermon with it. Um, I sometimes wonder how much I can spend like 20, 30 hours on a sermon, preach it, and then wonder how much of it throughout the week you actually remember, all right? Just to be honest, and I can be hard on that. But I got great encouragement this week because I started to realize that it's likely you don't listen to anybody. And so I shouldn't take it personally. And here's the reason why I noticed this. Have you ever been listening to a song and realized that it's about something you didn't realize it was about? And you've been singing it since you were a kid, but one time through... And, of course, all of us have made up lyrics to songs that we didn't exactly know what it said. Before you could Google it and find out what the song was actually about, you just made up your own lyrics to whatever that song is. And so I get that, but there's this other sense of which you can listen to something all the time and not get the point of what it is. And that brings us to Phil Collins. Because... Bill Collins, you know, was part of Genesis and then started his own solo album, and then had "In the Air Tonight," which I listened to in a football locker room to get ready for a game. Anybody know what that song's about? His divorce, which doesn't necessarily pump me up for football the same way. For honest, go to the next one. There's a few of these. So, if you've watched the new Marvel movies and Guardians of the Galaxy. They took old songs and kind of remixed it into like a mixtape. Kids, tapes were these things that used to hold information. And you you made your own mix and gave it to the girl that you liked. Um, This, oh, go back. Um, So, Rupert Holmes made this song on there called Escape. It's the Pina Colada song. This is a little bit more overt. Do you realize that that song is about two people cheating on each other They go to the classified ads, all right? It's like the the Facebook marketplace Tinder of its day. And they find each other. That's the whole song. Uh, It's about cheating on each other through the classified ads that don't even exist anymore. Uh, Go go to the next one. I try to get some from different time eras, but uh, I'm sorry. The police, like Sting had to come out and tell people that every breath you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you. Sting had to come out and tell people that was about a stalker because back in the day, so many people were playing it at their weddings. <laughs> You're like, it played at my wedding. I'm sorry, all right? He loves you a lot. Uh, go to the next one. Third Eye Blind, semi charm Life. This is for a little bit younger people. Um... There's a literal line in the song which many people sing to. It says, it's like, meth will lift you up until you break. The song is literally about doing meth. But it has an upbeat tune, and so like it was played on all the radios. All right, go up. Go to the next one. Uh, This is for an even younger generation. Foster the People uh, made a song called Pumped Up Kicks. This is a song that is... Almost everybody here that has listened to the radio has probably heard this song before. This song is about a school shooting. All right? And go to the next one. Um, a little bit more transcultural. The Macarena. Which, I, if, if I give you an out on one, it's the fact that some of you don't know Spanish. All right? Now, that doesn't count for Joel. All right? Who is really good at the Macarena here. All right? The Macarena is a song about a woman cheating on her, like her man, with his two best friends while he's enlisting in the army. But you know, it's got hand motions, so it just kind of it kind of got bias. us. Um, go to the next one. Um, this is I, I had to finish. You had to go to country, you know, you had to finish one. You know, if in the 90s, someone had an album, or you're sitting backwards in a chair with a cowboy hat like that, and Garth Brooks had one of those flames, the album was fire, okay? It was good. John Michael Montgomery came out with a song called, was it Stole? Or Auction? Basically, he went down to a county fair, and he bid on a woman, and the song is about how he took her home after an auction. Now, it's kind of a love song, and it's kind of a goofy thing. But in light of today's, in, like slavery, we probably wouldn't sing it the same way. She stole my heart, so I took her away. All right. So I, I put this out here to say, like, we can listen to things over and over again, and it not hit us what it's actually about. Jesus is going to employ uh, an art form as a medium to communicate truth. But here's the thing. He wants them to get it. He wants them to catch it. There's not as many parables in Mark, as there is in Matthew and Luke. Matter of fact, in the Gospel of Mark, we've talked about this since chapter 1, it's much more about the actions of Jesus. You get discipled by what Jesus does, and you sit back and you watch his actions, and there's things that his activities communicate to us. So, teachings can sometimes, like overtly, or parables, are less frequent than, say, Matthew or Luke has it. So we hadn't had one since chapter four, but Jesus is going to get into a parable today among other parables that we know from the other gospel writers happened during the Holy Week, which we said is the same time of Passover and his Passion Week that is happening and going on for these last final chapters of Mark. And here's the thing. Jesus is not telling a parable for them not to get it. He's telling them a parable so they get it in the deepest possible way. And so here's the thing, let's pray and ask God to speak to us and to give us ears to hear, because otherwise we're going to walk out of here humming Christianity or singing the tune, but not really knowing what the message is about. Do you hear me? So let's pray and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of You. Because You sent the Son to die for us. To suffer in our place. To take our punishment on the cross. To bury our sin and shame. And yet rise from the grave to give us new life. Father, would You come here and orchestrate our time together in such a way that it becomes undeniably obvious that we are sinners in need of grace. Holy Spirit, would you come and break us of our love affair with sin and yet comfort us in the gospel hope? God, come and have your way in this gathering. Be the pastor, be the teacher. God, give us ears to hear. Till the soil of our hearts that we might be a fruitful people in a barren land. God, we ask for that grace in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said... Amen. If you've got a Bible, uh, open it to Mark chapter 12. We're going to go through 1 through 12, but I want to run a little bit back into what we've encountered. Chapter 12, as we've picked up and into 11, is the triumphal entry of Jesus. And we said that this was prophesied about, foreshadowed about in Psalm 118, which we'll go back to later in the sermon. Okay, And that this entry was when the lambs were inspected. And yet he comes in and he curses the temple, he curses the symbol of the fig tree, and he cleanses it. Some say that he was flipping tables upside down, but what he was really doing was flipping the temple right side up. So that forgiveness and prayer among the nations could re-enter the way that God intended for his temple to orchestrate. And so he's flipping it right side up. But this creates for him problems with a particular group of people. And we talked last week about this delegation from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of its day. It was a mix of political power and religious power and influence over the people. These cats are moral. They're in power. They are shot callers. They are Ivy League educated. They got more degrees than Fahrenheit. They are the people that you would want your kids to become. And yet, because of their outward morality but inward corruption, Jesus is going to have unbelievable conflict with them because they're not who they say they are. They are leaders of God's people, but they're leading them into hell. And so, while in one way they're inspecting Jesus, in another way, Jesus is inspecting them. And so they came to Jesus last week, if you were here, and they begin to ask Jesus questions. And we talked about this. People questioning us and what we're doing and our faith can be its own kind of way of stifling what God has called us to do. And so they kind of come to Jesus and they say, license and registration. They say, by what authority and who gave you the authority to do this? And what they're trying to do is troll Jesus. Put him in his place. Remind him who we're in control here who's the boss no tony danza all right and so that's where they're coming at jesus and yet jesus in a rather brilliant way ask a better question he questions them and said answer me first and then i'll answer you and it resolved around john the baptist was he from heaven or was he from earth Which in a bigger way, the greater question, is Jesus truly from heaven or is Jesus just a man from earth? It's an introduction to even a greater question that separates eternity. And they kind of huddle together and they refuse to get real about the evidence. So they kind of put forth this pseudo-agnosticism of I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's from heaven, maybe he's from earth. I don't know. Because they came hoping to find evidence to get Jesus to self-incriminate that they might bring him before the crowds and take him down a notch, if not kill him. And Jesus, in some sort of like kung fu manner, has switched the thing where it's now them that are afraid of the crowds. And it's, it's just unbelievable. And so... They just refuse to answer. And so this is them camouflaging their ignorance. Camouflaging their lying behind their ignorance. We think that it's us who is asking God the questions, but in truth it's us that are on the docket. They think they're stumping Jesus, but it's actually them that is falling into a trap. This is intellectual and spiritual dishonesty with the evidence. This is lying that is being masqueraded as ignorance. And so we just talked about the discipleship um, thing to distill from this for us is that as Christians, we have to be people who are able to ask better questions. When people come not looking for answers, but are coming looking for ammo to start a fight, we have to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, knowing that these people are not truly seeking truth, they're seeking a fight. And we're going to get to the truth that they're not seeking with better questions. And so, Jesus now is going to engage in chapter 12. Now look, this is important contextually, because look at chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in Parables, pause. Who is the them? Who's the them? The them contextually is the them that just came looking for evidence to self incriminate Jesus. It's just the one, it's our question asking, won't get honest group here that said, I don't know. And so the parable is spoken to them spoken to them. Now, let's talk about parables for a minute, just as we discussed maybe today art. Art, or stories, draw us in. When we watch a movie, we begin to look at characters and say, we like this character and we dislike that character. By the way, sometimes a great actor can portray a villain that at the end of the movie, you hate that person, right? And what's tough is that then you see that person play another character and you're like, I still hate you in this other movie that I can't like you in a separate movie. Right? We begin to get drawn in and we start to say, I identify with this character. I do not identify with that character. Right? Everybody cries when Goose dies in Top Gun. We get drawn into movies. Here's what these storytelling does for us. Storytelling... Um, in one way, Jesus is using the back door of their imagination. And, and there's one way storytelling veils some things. Like, for instance, if these guys are coming looking for evidence to turn into their bosses about Jesus so that they could put him on trial and kill him. How are they going to go back? And it's like, well, what did Jesus say? It's like, well, he, he drew a cartoon about us, you know, like like he told a story and there's vineyards and it's like, we ask for evidence and you're coming back with stories? So there's one way in which parables or storytelling veils. You know what I mean? And it puts it in a different context. But here's the thing. There's a way in which stories makes it more clear than any other way that you could state it. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, and Gerald Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, absolutely understood this. Um, some of the greatest minds of the 20th century, they wrote Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia, and they were part of a group called the Inklings. And they discussed how mythology in ancient cultures was, a, was, it was not opposed to facts. It was a way of communicating facts in context. And so they loved story. So C.S. Lewis and Tolkien tried to write stories to, to communicate Christianity through the back door of people's imagination. It became a, a medium to communicate Truth, the same way that they're doing that, Disney is trying to use the same exact storytelling so that your kids normalize sin. It's the same exact thing. It's just a tool, regardless of how you use it. By the way, the red flag on Disney is when they like first screwed up a trilogy about Star Wars. We should have known, like "The Magic left the Kingdom." all right? took nothing you, once you messed up Star Wars. I was out, all right? Maybe you're not. So the story draws us in. And in the story about these villains, right, it's usually in the movies, like some movies, it's like, it's obvious if they're Nazis, right? It's like the villains are, like, it's always the people we dislike that end up being Nazis, right? In every movie. Or is it Russians now, right? I think we're back to Russians. We're back to the 80s. Mullets, inflation, gas crisis, And Bruce Willis has got to get a hold of some Russians at some point, right? Like they're the bad guy. We're going to, can't wait for those to come out. So we're back to who are the villains in this story. Here's the thing about the Sanhedrin and the delegation and the them that Jesus is communicating. They're hearing it and they would not be convinced that they're the bad guy in the story. Like I'm, I'm a good person. Okay, so this hasn't ever happened to you, but imagine your neighbor next to you comes to church and hears sermons and always thinks about someone not in the room that should be here to hear it. It's not you. Of course, it's not you. You showed up today. I'm talking about those other people you work with, you show up week after week, and it's like this sermon is so about that person but it never lands at your doorstep. That's weird, right? So this is the problem with them. And he's, he's gonna use story to draw them in. Now, they, I've got a slide up there if you could bring up the PowerPoint. Um, and I, I think that we, if we're gonna get what the story is, we have to start with the original. Um, we have to start with the original. So here's a little bit of background. I've talked about this before, go to the next slide. Um, So, we've discussed how Psalm 118, since chapter 11, is critical for the triumphal entry, which we are still in, by the way. This triumphal entry was foretold in Psalm 118, different elements about what it is. Open to me the gates of righteousness, by the way, Jesus called himself the gate in the gospel of John, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Anybody ever heard that before? Like the children's song? That is about the triumphal entry of when the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Anybody heard that stuff about cornerstone? I felt like we sang about it and we hear it in this parable. It seems like misplaced in this parable unless you understand how it's connected to the first coming of the Messiah. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord's made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. That save us is literally in Hebrew the word where we get Hosanna. Anytime you sing Hosanna in church, it is asking God to come and be our salvation and come to save us. We translate it here: save us. We pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what they sang in Jesus' first coming. It is what they will likely sing among those that love him at his second coming. Okay? This is the context. And Jesus is directly pulling from messianic expectations in Psalms about every move and activity he is making in the Gospels. Now, go to the next slide. Isaiah 5, we reference this in regards to one part of the lack of fruit that was on the fig tree. But it is more directly connected to what Jesus is doing to hear. And this is absolutely brilliant. So I need you to lock in here for a second. Let me sing for my beloved. Which, by the way, this is by the prophet Isaiah. And he's going to sing. So he's like a preacher. And I'm just going to be real with you. I don't do this. If I'm trying to preach something, I'm out. All right? I will communicate with words. But he just, he's going to sing this prophecy over them. He loves God and he's just going to sing this thing about his beloved. The beloved is God. My love concerning his vineyard. The vineyard belongs to the beloved. It belongs to God. And Isaiah is going to sing about it. And it starts out pretty good, right? Like, my beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. This is called labor, You may not be familiar with it. It's an old school idea. Um, And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. So that's where we talked about the fig tree and the fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge Between me and my vineyard. By the way, this is exactly what's going to happen in Mark chapter 12. When he says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? This is calling on what you think is your super great moral judgment. And what Mark 12 is going to put in their lap is, you think you're so good at making judgment calls, make a judgment call about what the owner would do to the tenants. Exact kind of same thing. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it. This is a question. What could God have done more for you that you think could have really produced fruit in your lives? When from His perspective, He has given you every grace and love and opportunity to produce good fruit, and yet you have produced bad fruit. So He calls them. Like, what more could have been done in your eyes? When I look for it to yield grapes, why? This is the question. Why did it yield wild grapes? So it's a parable about a vineyard. Go to the next one. That belongs to God. So if this is a song, it kind of took a country music twist here at the end, right? Like it started out like Happy Beetles, and then it got into that Dark Beetles era, all right? And now I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge... And it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they know, ha, that they know rain on, upon it. For the vineyard of my Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness and behold an outcry. So the issue is, he's coming and he's saying, there's, I'm going to clear the vineyard because of what it's producing. Now, the, there's a document called the, uh, uh, the Targum. The Targum Isaiah is, is an extra-biblical document um, that came from about 30 B.C. The Targum was... God's people basically made a paraphrase of scripture and then they would give a commentary. So just like some people buy commentaries that help explain the Bible today, this had a copy of a paraphrase and it had a commentary about what they thought about Isaiah. In this thing, they clearly understood that the vat, the wine vat was the altar and the watchtower was the temple. The Talmud, which is another extra-biblical document, confirms this, that these are the two things, and they saw this as a threat of God to destroy the temple and the system of God's people. But it wasn't. this was more of a judgment on all of the people, which are equivalent in the passage exegetically as the people themselves are going to be judged, which is the vineyard. It's, the, it, it's like the church, at, the people are getting judged. Now, I say that to say this. This is the original... And what Jesus is going to do is make some slight uh, like alterations to this original parable that they would have known, and when he makes the adjustment, the adjustments are the things that are going to stand out. And he's doing it intentionally. Here's how I, I would explain this. Um, we, we live in an era when we are not getting very many new movies. Here's what kind of movies we're getting. We're getting remakes of old movies 14,000 times over, right? As though the original True Grit wasn't good enough, right? We needed another True Grit. Um, Has anybody ever realized that, oh, brother, where art thou, George Clooney, Dapper Dan Man, is connected to Homer's Odyssey? It's a remake. Let me ask you this. How many Batmans are there? Don't even get me into which one's the good one. How how many Bonds, James Bonds are there? Who is your James Bond in your mind? Right? That's right. The real one. Right? Okay, Why, why do we remake movies? We remake movies so that we can see it again with new eyes. It has to be close enough and faithful to the original, or you lose all the the fans, you lose continuity, you lose connection. So there has to be some things that are similar, but there has to be some things that are dissimilar. Because if the new thing is not as true as the old thing, Allah referenced my Star Wars comment earlier, if if the new thing doesn't have the same punch as the old thing that caused people to originally love it, then you ruined it, right? You hijacked it. But if it says the old thing again with like fresh perspective and fresh power and with new, if it explores new areas, then we say it, it's like, it's genius, right? And we've seen remakes that do like a horrible job and we see remakes that do a fantastic job. And so Jesus is going to give us the remix of Isaiah 5. Let's look. Go, go to chapter 12 now. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. The fences are for, for protection. And he dug a pit for a winepress. Now, they lived in Rocky Mountains like us. Anybody ever try to go out in your backyard where there's rocks and dig? Right? It's called CrossFit. <laughs> and dig a pit for a winepress. And he built a tower. okay. And he leased it to tenants. You think having rental properties in Colorado is a problem? Hang with me for a second. Leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them the fruit of the vineyard. This is why, you know, whenever you have a lease situation, you know why there has to be lawyers involved? Just stay with me. Some of the fruit from the And they took him. And they beat him. And they sent him away empty handed. And again he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head. Treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And they killed him. And so many others. Many others. They beat. Some they killed. And he had still another A beloved son. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to pause. Do you realize, look in the verse, What does God expect the son to get? Respect. What is your filthy requirement? if not to your Lord, to give him honor and respect. The expectation is, is that the son is owed respect. They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him, notice this, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So, so here's your moral reasoning. You guys are Moral. Tell me, what will the owner of the vineyard do? If you're the owner, what would you do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is not an indictment upon the people of God. This is an indictment on the toxic leadership of God's people. See, it's the same, but it's different. What will the owner do? If you were the owner, what would you do if they did this to your servants, people that worked for you? And what would you do if they did this to your son? He's going to give the leadership of the church. He's going to take it from them and he's going to give it to others. What he's going to do? He's going to come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? This is unbelievable. To people that had memorized the whole Old Testament, he asked them if they've ever read the Bible. Have you not read the scripture? Then we come back to Psalm 118, the victor psalm, the Hosanna psalm, the triumphal entry of the Messiah to Jerusalem psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone was the main foundational piece of the house, and God is building a temple for his pleasure out of stones in this room that are pieced together around the cornerstone. Either you are building your life on the foundation of Jesus or he's the corner. You're either falling down on the rock that is Christ or the rock is falling on you. And he became the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And this is the Lord's doing. God did this. Not you, God did this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. That is, seeing what God has done with the stone Jesus should cause you to marvel and to worship. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he told the parable against him so they left him and went away. They get up out of the theater and they walk away. So let's put this thing in reverse and back up for a second. Let's talk about vineyards, because there's some things here that I think I want to, I think God wants us to draw here. One, uh, it talks about vineyards. So in Israel, in the plains area is where they grew grain, and on the slopes, they had mountainous region, particularly in the south. It was arid, it was mountainy, so they, they put their vineyards there. It was unbelievably rocky. So note this, what you see in Isaiah 5 in here, it required work. Who does the work? The owner. Because it's by His work that we are saved, not your works. He He does the elbow grease to make the place suitable for fruitfulness. Uh, One uh, Bible teacher said, when um, God was dumping out all the rocks on the earth, He gave Israel the majority of them, and so like when they had to plant a vineyard, you had to go out there and like excavate rocks. It had to be prepped. It had to be prepared. When I was in uh, like high school, I worked on a ranch. I know that's exactly what you thought. And I worked on a ranch. I had to work cattle. And uh, you know, we ran cattle and castrated cattle and sold cattle and worked with calves and all this. stuff. Well, end of my high school year, towards the end of my high school year, the ranch that I worked on and hauled hay and irrigation pipe and all this stuff made a glorious decision to turn that cattle ranch into a golf course. You know what the distance between a cattle ranch and a golf course is? Manual labor for the high school kid you got working for you. And so we just go out there, we'd have to find all the cow bones because, you know, people don't want to hit that with their three wedge or whatever. Okay? So you got to go out there and get all the cow bones up and you got to get rid of all the rocks. And not just drive a truck around looking for rocks and have to load them up in this truck. It is incredible labor to turn that into this. And this is exactly the picture That God has done for your salvation. It is labor. It is sweat equity. It is investment. Here's how I would portray God of your salvation. The owner of the church and the vineyard. God has done everything necessary for fruit. Now God hasn't done everything that you think is necessary for fruit. But the Bible says what you need to be fruitful in your life. God has done everything you need not everything you want we're not playing we're not the same prosperity stuff but everything you need to glorify God in your life and in your existence God has put that work in you have every reason to be successful in your walk with Christ there's no excuses right and so, this would take time. Like, when you plant a vineyard, um, and this time, like it would take three to four years to get the vines kind of up and going. By the way, this almost exactly parallels Jesus' public earthly ministry. He was earth, his earthly ministry is about three or four years. Exactly from his start to the end is about how long it takes to get a vineyard up and running. Now, there's um, inside of this a lot of things that he had to do. He built a hedge or protection about it. You don't want just foot traffic coming around your vineyard. Here's an easy way to illustrate this, because there's grapes in Walmart that some of you people in here have eaten and not paid for. You know why? You just drive by, tag a few. They need a hedge of protection, right, to stop you heathens from eating free grapes. That's what they do. They they have to limit the foot traffic. Then you have to have a vat and and. And you have to build a tower so you can see animals like bears or whatever coming and enemies coming that you could store things in. What, what's interesting about this, this picture, this parable, is that this idea of tenants, we, we know from other biblical doc, or extra-biblical documents, was something that was particularly prevalent in Galilee, where they would do this practice. Most of the people, this is, this is a story that had the everyday smell on it. Like everybody hearing it would have seen what had taken place in regards to leases and owners. Like, this is not something that most people wouldn't have understood. They've seen people that own the land, that leased the land out, and most times, in, at biblical times, the owner of the land was due somewhere between 25 and 50% of the profit back for the use of the land. Uh, the reason I say this is common, it's like similar. I, I played rugby in France, and we served and did church planning there. And one thing that uh, I found really curious is I had like 40 to 60 guys that were on my team. Some of them, the reason that number ranges is we had guys on the team that were like 58 and they didn't play, but they came to the barbecues. You know what I'm saying? So we had these guys and one of the things that was hard for me as an American is the French, these are males, got together and could talk about wine culture for two hours straight. The barrels it was in, the rains that year. They talked about wine culture the way men in America talk about fantasy football. It just goes on and on and on, right? So there's, like, people that come from wine culture understand this. And by the way, I'm going to have to make a side note here that may ruffle feathers, but this is wine. This is not grape juice, all right? It was wine. God used wine as a picture throughout the Old Testament. It was instituted as a part of celebrations, Jesus turns water into wine. Wine was a part of the sacrificial system and the Levitical system. Um, and to go further, I found this unbelievably fascinating and uh, hopefully you won't hate me for it, but you know that grape juice wasn't invented until like 1869. Like, is everybody, did the air go out of the room or is it me, Randy? Like, we use grape juice for communion, but it's like grape juice wasn't invented until 1869 when a guy named uh, Thomas Bronwell Welch um, basically invented a method of pasteurizing grape juice to halt its fermentation process, preventing it from being turned into wine. And this happened around the same time as the temperance movement, and which predated the Prohibition era of that. And there was people that were struggling so much, broken families with alcoholism, that churches began to make decisions about putting grape juice in communion because there were so many people devastated by alcoholism. So that's kind of where that in church history comes from. But I found this even more fascinating. Um, General Order 99 in the Navy around the same time, uh, which was June 1st, 1914, banned alcohol in the Navy. And if you don't know anything about sailors and alcohol, yeah, they loved this decision. All right? They loved it. They, uh, no, they hated it. Basically, sailors from that point on could not take upon a naval vessel alcohol. They had two options, grape juice and coffee. This order, uh, and so coffee at this time became known as a cup of joe. Anybody know why? Because the man who made it illegal to take alcohol on the ship was Josephus Daniels. And so as slang to make fun of him, who got rid the guy that got rid of alcohol on ships, they started calling coffee a cup of joe. But you couldn't drink coffee, like by the gallon, because bathroom, all right? So they needed something with more nutrients, so they got, grape juice became this popular way to give them minerals. The negative about grape juice, they didn't understand, is you got to put 40 pounds of sugar in it. If you've ever drank grape juice without sugar, it'll change your life, all right? It will suck the joy right out of your face, all right? It is not good. You just got to dump pounds of sugar in there and then... Give it to your kids and then you don't know why they're bouncing all the walls or have ADHD. But they used wine because wine had a symbolic experience. Even here, the idea that the altar and the wine that are connected together has this connection even to the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this whole idea inside of Scripture about the role that wine played. And that heaven is a place of, you know, the kingdom is new wine, that one day there will be a feast and wine in heaven. And so, Jesus is picking up on this is where does that come from? It comes from the vineyard. And there's people overseeing the vineyard that should be giving this fruit to God, but instead, when he comes to his rental property, it's the Alamo. Like, he can't get what's due him. And this... This gets into the, the, the group that was sent to him to them, right? Like, who does he send? At first, it's these servants. And the first one he sends in, and it says they send him away, listen, empty-handed. God comes looking for fruit, and they go away like it's a middle school dance. They just get rejected, right? The next one that comes, it's a little bit more than that. It's, it's escalating, right? Like, the next one that comes, he doesn't just get rejected. He gets hit in the head, Right? Which, I don't know if you remember the last time that you got hit in the head, but you probably got angry. Even if it was your fault, you just bumped your head into your car or something, you got angry at your car. Not to reference more country music, but if you mess with Chris Ledoux's hat, which is on his head, my gracious. But then it gets even more. They start to kill those that are sent. Kill them. This is the prophets that were sent to them. And, and, and Jesus is drawing off of this thing here. It's history. They have a long track record of not listening and not giving the due, not repenting. The leadership of God's people have a long history of abuse to truth tellers. Ezekiel was treated with the same hatred. Amos, in such a way, had to flee because he was thrown out. Zechariah, if you you actually bring up that slide with the tomb. Zechariah was rejected. That's actually his tomb there outside of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 24, and then it says that he was stoned. Micah was beaten in the face in 2 Kings 22. You've read about John the Baptist. We've been through that. Mark lost his head for what he said against Herodias. Right? In tradition, Jeremiah was stoned for what he said. In extra-biblical documents, the early church apologist Justin Martyr was debating with the Jew Trifo about the truth of the gospel and the Jews' treatment of prophets and their rejection of Jesus. And in that dispute, he references that the prophet Isaiah, they both understood, Jews and early Christians, that the prophet Isaiah was sawed in two with a wooden saw. The one who wrote Isaiah 5, the original version of this, that Jesus remixes, sawed in two with a wooden saw, which many theologians understand to to correlate to Hebrews chapter 11 in the, the Hall of Fame of Faith, when it mentions a faithful witness who for their faith was sawed in two. Many people understand that to be discussing Isaiah himself, who wrote the original version of this. It is a normative, uniform reaction to persecute those that are sent by God. Normative. That those that are sent are rejected, they're hit. They're beating. And I wonder if the whole time that they're doing this to the servants that keep coming and keep going, are they laughing? Are they joking? Do they think they're going to get away with it? Do they think they're not going to reap what they've sowed? Do they think it's going to go on like this forever? And that Jesus isn't going to show up on a white horse with Johnny Cash playing in the background? I mean... Do they believe that they're not going to face the music as they escalate? So here's the thing. If you're listening to this and the first time they send a service, you're like, oh, that's, that's not good. And the second time he comes to collect rent and it's full Alamo, like you start to say, all right. Like if that's it, they beat one of our people. By the time they kill like one of the servants, tell me if I'm wrong here. Don't you feel like, hey, this is too much. Owner, the owner needs to get his boys together, Right. I mean, as the church that probably in the county has the most firearms, I think we should understand this, right? Like, I'm calling Toby. Toby, we got we to go talk to a dude, right? We're going to put the Witt brothers on, like, opposite mountains with sniper rifles, right? And we're going to roll in there, right? We are the most loaded security team in the county. When they asked us to do Resurrection Fest, they asked how, I asked how we could help. They're like, you got a security team down there, like, 15 dudes, right? Yes, all right. That's how I guess we're going to help with the resurrection fest. So so like, isn't there something in your mind that the first time that they don't pay rent, you want to get the owner, get your people together and go down there and make some heads roll. We are one and done Batman vengeance going in to sort this thing out. By the time that you get to many others beaten and killed, by the time you get to the sun, don't you feel like, oh no, this is a bad idea. I mean, when you read the story, and you're like, this is, this is too much. You're giving them too much rope. Like, do not do this. So here's one observation. The owner of the vineyard is more gracious than you or I. The owner of the vineyard is more patient than you or I. With sinners. The owner of the vineyard gives way more chances than you or I would. I mean, some of us in here, you know, we're old school. You burn us once. You get no second chances. That's just not God. keeps in an opportunity after opportunity. Now, it's going to come to an end. But let's just say this about God. God has a long fuse. God has a long fuse. Now, it's going it's to come to an end. But it didn't come to an end quickly. He doesn't fly off the handle in anger. He sends messenger after witness after witness after witness into your life. He keeps sending them. And there's no greater understanding of His love than that He sent the Son. That the world through him might be saved. It escalates. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus draws off of history. If you go to the next slide. He draws off of history. Church, you're not going to find grace like what we find in the owner of the vineyard. You're not going to find grace like this anywhere else in the world. Jesus, we know that in Matthew, he, he has a denunciation of the Pharisees. And we, we hear some things here that I think is really fascinating about them and about us. Maybe, maybe telling even. He has an indictment against the Pharisees and the group that's coming against him. Matthew 23, 29-33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Same group. Hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets. The one I just showed in the previous slide. And you decorate monuments of the righteous saying, If we would have lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Go ahead and get it to the end of the fuse. Fill it up. Fill up the cuff of wrath because it's time for this thing to be over. You You serpents, you brood of vipers... How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? By the way, Jesus, I I, I feel like this Jesus cannot preach in our culture. Because we just don't have this perspective of Jesus that preached absolute truth to wicked people. Notice here that they are drawing off the idea of history. If we would have lived during the time of the Nazis, we wouldn't have done the Holocaust. I and mean, that's what they're saying. Like our fathers, we know our fathers did that. But that's not us. We're so evolved. We're enlightened. We're better than those people. Isn't that the idea that comes into this? Isn't that the idea that comes into your heart? We are what's called Whig historians who reinterpret history and every historical event in our favor to make us look better and to make them look worse. We have a problem with history. I mean, go, go to the next slide. Therefore, I send you. Notice here, Jesus. In the parable here, it's the owner of the vineyard who sends the messengers. Notice here, it's Jesus who says, He's the one that sends prophets throughout the Old Testament. He's the God of the Old Testament that sent the prophets. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men. And He's sending wise men and prophets even today. Scribe some of whom you will kill, that means there's still going to be persecution in the church, and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechi, whom you murdered between, notice two objects, the sanctuary and the altar, the vat and the tower, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And within one generation, in 70 AD, Rome is going to come and literally level Jerusalem. By the way, during this leveling, the temple is going to be destroyed, the temple services are going to be destroyed in fulfillment of this prophecy. There is no Sanhedrin today. There's no Pharisees, there's no Sadducees. There's no record of which tribes Jewish people today even belong to. We have no idea, mostly except for... There's some people with like the last name Judah that you would know that they're the tribe. But otherwise, there's no record of which tribes or which Jews. None of that stuff. This whole system of leadership has been obliterated exactly within a 40-year generation and leveled. And the kingdom and the leadership of God's people have been given to others. Which is exactly what Jesus says in the parable. He comes to them and he says, You got a problem with history because you look at your fathers and think that that kind of wicked you wouldn't you wouldn't have an abortion. You wouldn't cheat on your taxes. You wouldn't cheat on your spouse. You would I wouldn't do that. Like I I would I think until you realize that all the wickedness of human history is possible inside the flesh that you carry around, until you realize that, you really don't realize how much you need Jesus. And that without Him, you would do exactly the same atrocities that our fathers did. That's tough. But it's real. Let me let me take, let me take it down a notch. Has anybody realized that there's a point in your, in your childhood growing up that you just became like, Like a PhD in diagnosing how terrible your parents were, right? Like you, like you didn't know, but there's like you got into these teenage years and you start to realize it's like my parents aren't cool, and they do all kinds of things wrong. Like she yelled at me in the parking lot, and then walked into church and shook people's hands, right? He took me. And disciplined me. And then came right back in and smiled to other people. Right? We get in this thing where, as kids, we start to become crystal clear critics of our parents. Like, they're awful. The worst they ever were. Until we had our own kids. <laughs> and then we kind of crawfish a little bit. Right? We've got to back that up a bit. And then you start to realize, you know, my parents weren't as bad as I thought when I was 13. Now, there's a period between there, like that 13 to having your own kids, where you kind of step back, and there's a period there where you start to believe, I may be a lot of things wrong in my life when I'm 22, but at least I'm not them. Which is a really clever way to hide our sin behind the sins of other people. Do you see it? I'm just using history it's more let me say it like this we are better at criticizing others in the past than we are honestly evaluating ourselves in the present we are better critics of other people in the past if we would have been there we wouldn't have done that jesus is like you build monuments to those people it, like li- literally, that tomb I showed you. They could have went and worshipped God in Jerusalem, passed by that tomb in the morning, being like we wouldn't have killed Zechariah. Passed by that tomb outside Jerusalem in the morning, and crucified Jesus by afternoon. That ain't us, man. It's probably the Methodist. You know what I'm saying? Shout. So, let me let me finish this here. What is the motive? The motive of the tenants is that if we kill the owner, we can take possession of his stuff. It's as old as the garden of Eden. We will be like God. It's like, God, I want all your labor. I want your blessing. I want your help. I want all of your earth. I want I want your sexuality. I want money. I want cars. I want pleasure. I want all the things that you have created, but I don't want you to be Lord of my life. I want your stuff. I just don't want you... Sovereign, governing king over my existence. The motive here is if we kill God, we can have all of His stuff. And the parable responds that your fruitless rebellion and your rejecting of the beloved Son says that you're just as cursed and doomed to destruction As that which is coming upon the temple. And that that came. So, let's meditate on this. As the first coming of the Messiah found them fruitless, I don't want the second coming of my king to find me the same way. Let me me show you a couple things that are different. So when they remade the, when Jesus remakes the parable and remixes the song, here's one thing that is a little bit different. So it's not about the vineyard being destroyed, it's about actually the leadership being destroyed, the tenants who are managing the vineyard. But this is awesome. In Isaiah, he says the owner, God, is the beloved. But in the parable, it's the son that's sent that is the beloved. Did you see that? Jesus is the God owner in Isaiah. And he's also the beloved son who is sent. He was thrown out. Jesus was crucified outside the city walls. Hebrew says that he took our punishment outside. He was thrown out. So that we might be accepted in. And we may come and think, well this, this is about whether they accept or reject Him. No, this parable is really about whether they are accepted or rejected. And through the Son that was thrown out, God has granted us access that we might come into His kingdom. God sent the Son so that you might come to Him. Do you know the Son that is beloved Are you building your life on him as the cornerstone? Or are you like these evil tenants rejecting his prophets, rejecting his scripture, crucifying the son and throwing him out of your life? Or are you being one that the vineyard is being given to? Because here's the thing is if you won't receive Christian witnesses and friends that have shared the gospel with you, if you won't receive the preaching of the word, if you won't receive the prophet, if you won't receive the lesser slaves that have been sent to you, what do you think you're going to receive the son and what he has to say? Can I pray for you? Maybe just between you and the Lord, you would ask and look across the landscape of your heart Is there fruit there? That is God initiated, God worked, God glorifying. Is there respect for the Son, worship of the Son, love for the Son, building upon the Son? Or if you look across the landscape of your heart, is it barren? With no affections for Him. The Holy Spirit is working in your life today and there's somebody here that's never trusted the Lord. There's somebody here that just needs prayer for their own fruitfulness, their own walk, their own vineyard. I want to invite you just in Nobody's looking around. Everybody's just, would you raise your hand and just let me know and see you that I might pray for you. Just pray for your walk. I see your hand. We're all going to be in this season. When the King comes, we want to be found faithful. I see your hand. If I can pray for you, just let me know. So good. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you that you so love the world. That you sent your only begotten Son. That whosoever would believe in him Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Celebrating in your vineyard. Rejoicing at the wedding feast. Triumphal because of the triumph of Jesus. God, make us a house that accepts you and does not reject you. That welcomes you with open arms. And doesn't stiff arm you with our sin. I pray for those that boldly have asked for prayer over their own fruitful walk. God, I pray that you would uniquely and supernaturally, God, bring about unbelievable fruitfulness in their lives and their walk this week. That you would respond to them and their stepping out in faith, God, by doing above and beyond what we can ask or imagine. Holy Spirit, this is your people, and so shepherd them in whatever direction you are pleased to do. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you sing with us?